Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. If corporate media's coverage of the genocide in Gaza leaves you with that upside-down feeling, you're not alone. Throughout Israel's brutal 76-year system of occupation, ethnic cleansing, and apartheid in Palestine, it has managed to portray itself as not the occupier, but as the victim. We speak to author and film director Sut Jolly. They had to present themselves as always as the victims and that the Arabs were terrorists. Uh, that that had to be the frame. If the frame ever got to be about territory, about who owns what, etc., they knew they would lose. So they had to keep the frame on evil Arabs trying to kill Jews. And that whatever Israel does, uh, it is doing in self-defense. And as Israel's narrative becomes more and more over the top this time, perhaps we are witnessing that the propaganda of empire is breaking down right along with the empire itself. There are other sources of information now. They no longer have a total monopoly on it. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, our show today is about the narratives long spun by Israel, casting itself as David versus the Goliath of Arab countries surrounding it, and casting itself as the victim, even today, as it commits genocide against the people of Gaza. We'll be discussing the documentary, The Occupation of the American Mind. Now our headlines. Just when you thought that the level of depravity of the attack on Gaza could sink no lower, Israel mounted a major bombing attack on the city of Rafah, killing dozens of men, women, and children, just as Americans were distracted by the Super Bowl. An estimated 1.4 million people are now packed into the city, which normally houses about one-fifth that number. Hundreds of thousands were told by Israeli forces to flee to Rafah as a so-called safe zone and are now under attack against the border with Egypt, where Israel wants to expel the population into the Sinai Desert. But Palestinians are determined to live or die in their homeland. On Monday, February 12th, when hundreds gathered in front of the White House for an emergency hands-off Rafah rally, activists with the Palestinian youth movement and from Maryland to Palestine read a message sent by those displaced in Rafah. We pray in the name of every displaced person and in the name of the people of Rafah. All the powers of the world must move forcefully to curb the aggression stop the massacres, and prevent the Rafah disaster. We will not accept to return and leave the people of Rafah who welcomed us and opened their hearts to us before their homes and shared their food, clothing, and drinks with us. We will not leave them alone. We made the decision. Only what God has written for us will happen. We also call on the free people of the world, and especially in the land of Egypt, its proud and beautiful people who love Palestine to move and put pressure on their government to put an end and prevent the Rafah operation. We will not 
road. Either victory or martyrdom. God is great. Hands off Rafah now. Since Israel began its attack on October 7th, more than 100,000 people have been killed, seriously wounded, or are missing and presumed dead, as Israel has dropped tons and tons of bombs on Gaza, equivalent to several nuclear bombs. On Tuesday, February 13th, the International Court of Justice announced that South Africa has filed an urgent request for additional measures in their genocide case against Israel citing the, quote, unprecedented military offensive against Rafa, end quote. Meanwhile, Israel continues to block trucks carrying vital food and medicine to Gaza and continues its illegal attack on Gaza's healthcare system by invading Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus, ordering people sheltering at the hospital to evacuate and then shooting dead many as they exited the complex. In D.C., as activists rallied to stop the carnage in Gaza, on the home front, they forced several revisions in a new so-called crime bill for the nation's capital. The legislation, the Secure D.C. Omnibus Amendment Act of 2024, received a first vote of approval by the D.C. Council on February 8th after it passed amendments that will eliminate collection of DNA until a suspect is actually convicted will expand the list of crimes which qualify for record expungement and record sealing and will require that the district study the impact of a proposed lengthening pretrial detention period in D.C. I spoke to Frankie Sebron of Harriet's Wildest Dreams about organizing to amend the legislation. Fueling mass incarceration is not actually going to keep our city safer. What it actually does is exacerbate the cycle of harm. And in order to stop this cycle, what actually needs to happen is we need to get at those root causes. We live in a city of have and have nots. And what what that looks like is for folks in D.C., they're under economic burden. And so we cannot expect to incarcerate our way out of economic violence. Activists in D.C., are still concerned about measures in the proposed law that would empower police to use dangerous chokeholds and car chases and criminalize community gatherings as suspected drug markets. The next vote on the secure D.C. legislation is scheduled for March 5th. In culture and media, all eyes are on the United Kingdom's high court for a two-day hearing February 20th and 21st that could determine whether WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange will be extradited to the United States to face charges for publishing material that exposed U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. Leading up to the hearing, lawmakers in his home country of Australia voted Wednesday, February 14th, in favor of pushing the U.S. and U.K. to allow Assange to return home instead of being extradited to the U.S. And finally, On the Ground was on hand to witness the celebration for Irene T. Whalen, a curator and entrepreneur who brought art from Africa and the African diaspora to Washington for 32 years at her store, Zawadi, on the historic U Street Corridor. Dozens of customers, friends and family 
gathered at the store at the end of January to wish her well in her next chapter, which may include Zawadi as an e-commerce business. This is Waylon, who thanked those who gathered. I think sometimes we are hesitant about whether people will like African-centered, Afrocentric items, and we hesitate to purchase. I think in giving gifts to people who may not know they like something, it elevates their own knowledge of what Africa and the diaspora has to offer. And they spread it to other people. We don't have to relearn the wheel. We've gained some knowledge. We can pass that on. And I think we have a, an obligation in some ways to do that. So I think we push that reset button. And seeds that are planted don't necessarily grow in the time that we would like them. But one day you look down and you see a leaf. Or you see multiple leaves. And you know that you created something, that what you planted has now come into the world. And so I look forward to that day. And I look forward in helping in whatever ways I can. We will bring you more about this special curator on our website, on our social media, and in future shows. And those are headlines and happenings. Up next, the occupation of the American mind. Stay with us.
July 8, 2014, Israel launched a devastating military attack on the Gaza Strip. Over the course of 51 days, the Israeli military dropped nearly 20,000 tons of explosive on Gaza, a densely populated area the size of Philadelphia, killing over 2,000 Palestinians and wounding tens of thousands more. The overwhelming majority of these casualties were civilians. This strip of land is being bombarded from the air, sea and land. Israel launched at least 160 strikes on the Gaza Strip. And there's one less hospital in Gaza now. Israel today flattened Wafa Hospital. The sheer scale of the attack sparked outrage and condemnation around the world. Israel's month-long pounding of Gaza shocked many people around the world. Mass demonstrations have been held in many of the world's major cities. But in the United States, the story was different. Polls showed the American people holding firm in their support for Israel. This is the latest CNN ORC poll of Americans shows 57% of those polls say Israel's action in Gaza is justified, 34% say unjustified. These numbers were striking, but they weren't new. Over the course of a conflict in which Palestinian casualties have far outnumbered Israeli casualties, the American people have consistently shown far more sympathy for Israelis than for Palestinians. It's very difficult to divorce public opinion on any question from the media coverage that people rely on to form opinions. And I think the most prevalent lesson from looking at the coverage is that the coverage tends to see this conflict from the Israeli side. Study after study has demonstrated that Israeli perspectives dominate American media coverage. So by far the most common thing we've heard is that everything comes down to Israel's right to defend itself. Israel is a state that implements its right to defend itself and its citizens. It is a talking point that is set from the top, and by the top I mean from the highest officials, government officials, who are commenting on this issue which the media obsessively covers and repeats. A man's got to do what a man's got to do, and you'd say a country's got to do what a country's got to do. We have to defend ourselves. In the uh, most recent war uh, in 2014, when we looked at mainstream media outlets, almost by a margin of, of three to one, Israeli spokespeople overrepresented compared to Palestinian spokespeople. So almost every time you turned on the screen, there was a Israeli representative on the screen telling you Israel is the one that's in a position of defense. It is being attacked. And basically Israel is saying, hey, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that if rockets fly on your head, you're allowed to defend yourself. Add to this the fact that you have American elected officials also reinforcing Israel's right to defend itself. As I've said many times, Israel has a right to defend itself against rocket and tunnel attacks from Hamas. And you hear some of the same framing by anchors who reiterate and reinforce many of the same talking points that the Israeli official spokespeople are making. Israel has the right to defend itself against Hamas, of course, a group that is firing rockets on Israel coming out of tunnels to attack Israelis. That imbalance there was very significant in shaping the way the, uh, the public understood this uh, conflict. I worked in European media for a long time. The coverage is the opposite. There's Palestinian legislators, Palestinian thinkers, Palestinian intellectuals, pro-Palestinian thinkers, many voices. So let me say very, very frankly, it's very easy to blame the victim. It's very easy to pull out a terrorist label. You come to America and you think that you're an alien, you're looking at a different world or a different planet. 
and I'm thinking, what's going on here? When a narrative is so dominant, thousands of rockets without any visible descent or complication, it's it's extremely difficult to make clear to people that it is it is basically a propaganda story. Israel is under siege by a terrorist organization. That is How do you make that clear when the mainstream spectacle is so unrelenting and total? We hear over and over again that the conflict comes down to Palestinian terrorism and Israeli security. And what gets pushed out of the frame entirely is the fact that for almost 50 years, Palestinians have been systematically dispossessed from their land and denied their most basic human rights. Pioneers and refugees from countries of the oppression, young and old, they are going now to a land which accepts them. They will march to their work in the Jewish settlements to build roads, to quarry stones. They will drill wells to restore to Palestine's soil its long neglected fruitfulness. Zionism, the nationalist movement that emerged in Europe in the late 1800s, was dedicated to the idea that the Jewish people, after centuries of living as persecuted minorities within other countries, were entitled to a state in historic Palestine, the biblical homeland of the Jews more than 3,000 years before. But there was a basic problem with the choice from the start. Palestine was already home to hundreds of thousands of Palestinian Arabs who had been living in Palestine for centuries. First under the rule of the Ottoman Empire, and since World War I, under the control of the British Empire, and for decades had aspirations of their own for an independent state in Palestine. Tensions steadily escalated during the 1930s, placing more and more pressure on the British colonial government to reconcile the competing interests of both sides. After World War II and the Holocaust, the situation reached a breakpoint. Ultimately, the British colonial government made the decision to withdraw and to pass the problem on to the newly created United Nations. In 1947, UN Resolution 181 recommended that Palestine be split into two parts. Jews, who were a third of the population, would receive 56% of the land. Palestinians, who were two-thirds of the population and possessed more than 90% of historic Palestine, would receive 44%. These terms were immediately rejected by Arab leaders as unfair. But in the spring of 1948, Zionist leaders declared Israel a state along the proposed borders anyway, triggering the first Arab-Israeli war. Arab armies set out to destroy the newly born nation, but suffered repeated defeats. After winning a crushing victory, Israel took possession of even more land. By the time armistice was declared in 1949, Israel controlled 78% of historic Palestine. The creation of the new state would be celebrated by Israelis as a triumph. But to this day, it is commemorated by Palestinians as the Nakba, the Arabic term for the catastrophe, in memory of the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who were driven from their homes to make way for the new Jewish state. All told, approximately 700,000 people, more than half of Palestine's native population, were uprooted. There's a lot of sympathy that can be generated, and I think rightly so, for what Jewish people 
as a whole have dealt with in Western societies and, and globally because of anti-Semitism. The question then becomes, um, what is the proper response to that? The Zionist answer is, of course, statehood. And there's many people who would sympathize with that if it was, in fact, done in a vacuum and if it was, in fact, done for a people without a land in a land without people. The reality is that's just not the way that it happened. There were people here. They lost their homes, their livelihood, their nation, their everything. This was a land in 1910 that was 93% Palestinian Arab and 6-7% Jewish. How did it suddenly become 80% Jewish and 20% Palestinian? This was not a normal demographic transition. This was a consequence of Israel's desire to create a Jewish state, and to do that it had to get rid of as many Palestinians as possible. There's other more complex factors, but that's cutting it to its bare bones as we see it. That is, I think, in a certain sense, the core of the conflict. The Palestinians have suffered inordinately as a result of the creation of Israel. Uh, the creation of a Jewish state in a country that had an Arab majority necessarily and inevitably caused them irreparable harm. The Palestinians use the term catastrophe to speak of the 1948 consequences when they lost their land the first time around. In 67, it was another Nakba, another catastrophe. In June of 1967, Israel won what was perceived as a stunning underdog victory over much larger Arab armies during the Six-Day War. With victory, in addition to taking land from Egypt and Syria, Israel began to militarily occupy all remaining Palestinian territory in the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. Suddenly, all of Palestine is now lost. We now had no Palestinian land left under Palestinian control. You had a huge Palestinian population living as refugees, or living under occupation. Palestinians are governed under military law. They are essentially prisoners. They are treated as if they were all prisoners of war. They have no rights. In the immediate aftermath of the 67 war, the United Nations Security Council passed Resolution 242. Citing international law forbidding the takeover of territory by war, 242 explicitly called for Israel to withdraw its armed forces. But to this day, Israel has largely failed to comply, not only holding Palestinian territory, but confiscating additional land and building massive Jewish settlement blocks in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, in direct violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention, which expressly forbids states from transferring civilian populations into territory it occupies. In addition, Israel has established an entire matrix of security control on Palestinian land to secure these settlements, including checkpoints that prevent Palestinians from traveling freely within their own land, and a 440-mile security wall along the Israeli border that cuts into Palestinian territory. We're talking about massive denial of human rights for millions of people. At the most basic level, the government that is ruling over these people uh, is, is not a government in which these people, the Palestinians, have a voice. There's really no way to fully understand why the Palestinian people have resisted Israel for so long without understanding this basic history of dispossession and occupation. But for the most part, this isn't the story we get in American media coverage. Instead, the legitimate grievances of Palestinians 
including their right to resist an illegal military occupation, get pushed out of the frame by this constant discussion about extremism and terrorism and anti-Semitism. And that was a powerful excerpt from the documentary, The Occupation of the American Mind. And so many important points were made about how information about Palestine is sold to us as being about terror and not about territory of the Palestinian people being stolen from them. And in the case of Gaza, living under a total siege of land, water, and air for the past 17 years. We have to hold on to this information in a a world where we are beset by corporate media that is not giving us the whole truth, that is not giving us the truth at all in many cases, and is fomenting all types of confusion and even fomenting hate against Palestinian people by not telling the true history of of the theft of the land, the displacement of more than three quarters of a million people in 1948, and the continued uh, ethnic cleansing, apartheid, and now in Gaza we see not a slow genocide, but a quick genocide, starvation, murder, complete obliteration of the people's cultural institutions, their homes, their mosques, their schools, their churches. And we know that the International Court of Justice has determined that a plausible genocide is happening in Gaza, as if we couldn't see that with our own eyes. There are very few movies, documentaries that ask us to stop and think about the strategies and systems in place that are designed to control our thinking and to basically dumb us down, to make us forget history. And so this is a very powerful piece that tells us so much about the world. So I know you want to support this type of news and information that you won't get anyplace else. And it's been my privilege and honor to do this show for almost 10 years. May 1st, this May 1st, 2024, will mark On the Ground's 10th anniversary. And we definitely will tell you more about that in the coming weeks. But it has been a real honor to to bring voices from the community, from the halls and places of power here in the, the belly of the beast and bring those voices and bring those sounds to the to the air. And that's what On the Ground is all about. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and now I'm joined by Sut Jolly, Professor Emeritus of Communication at the University of Massachusetts, founder and executive director of the Media Education Foundation, and he's the executive producer of this documentary, Occupation of the American Mind. Thank you for joining me, Sut. Okay, pleased to be here. Well, Even though this documentary is from 2016, it's so applicable to what is happening today. And I wanted to just throw this wide open in the beginning and just ask you to to give your reflections on the things that you cover in this documentary and how it's so applicable to this genocide happening in Gaza right now. I mean, there's so many points that I wanted to raise with you, but um, maybe we can just start with this whole idea that 
uh, you hammer home that the narrative has always been in this country that Israel has a right to defend itself. And the powerful lobby, media, uh, corporate influence, the Christian right, and all these forces that have come together to hammer home this narrative again and again, especially even through Congress. Yeah, I mean, right from the very start, Israel has presented itself as this little David, you know, battling the giant Arab Goliath. And so this idea that they, whatever they do, they do in self-defense, even when they're acting like monsters, as they are right now, even when they're, even when they're doing the most horrific things, they are doing it in self-defense. They can't, they have to, you know, they have to do that. Uh, and that's been consistent from the very start of uh, of the propaganda campaign. The, the propaganda campaign and the PR campaign really starts in a kind of systematic way after the Lebanon war in 1982, when Israel actually received very bad press in the U.S. And they decided that from that moment on, they were going to control the narrative, uh, that they had to present themselves as always as the victims and that the Arabs were terrorists, uh, that that had to be the frame. If the frame ever got to be about territory, about who owns what, etc., they knew they would lose. So they had to keep the frame on evil Arabs trying to kill Jews, and that whatever Israel does, uh, it is doing in self-defense. And so that has been consistent you know, for, the last, for the last 30 years now. And, and it's, a, it's a very systematic attempt. It's a very systematic set of structures that they put in place to do that. It's not really in this documentary, but in terms of how this current uh, attack on Gaza has been framed, I believe that Netanyahu actually cited 9-11. And someone said that this is our 9-11. And, you know, for those of us who's, who've been... Uh, skeptical about the official narratives of 9-11, that reference seemed to be very, not as spot on as he might have thought it was, because for many of us, it it, it does follow that 9-11 that narrative because there are a lot of questions about it. And we've had uh, on our show, people like uh, Max Blumenthal of the Gray Zone, we've cited information from Electronic Intifada and other sources that have really questioned and really dug down to what actually happened on October 7th and really blew up this narrative about these uh, massive attacks on um, just civilians that it, you know, had reframed it as a military attack uh, by the military wing of Hamas, and have also questioned these narratives that have come out of Israel about all these atrocities and mass rapes and all these things that will kind of fall in line to the victimhood narrative that this documentary talks about. It seems like in this latest episode, all those narratives were on steroids, and unlike in the past, it just seems like it's it's run out of steam this time, despite the the horrific uh, atrocities and narratives that have been spun. I mean, Netanyahu drew the comparison with 9-11 straight away, because he knew that for Americans, especially 9-11 essentially stopped all thinking. It meant that you couldn't really ask any questions about why 9-11 happened. You couldn't ask any questions about history. All you had was the trauma. All you had was Americans as victims and this traumatic experience. 
And you know, that's what he was referencing when he said this, you know, this old when people were saying this is our 9-11. And that's a way to stop thinking. That's a way to, for people to not actually ask questions about history and to essentially say anything that happens now is justified, uh, even the most horrific things that Israel has done. Uh, and as you said, the, you know, the propaganda has been, you, you, I think you said, on steroids. I mean, the propaganda has been way over the top. And that's one of the, one of the uh, kind of characteristics of propaganda. The worst activities and the worst the behavior that they are trying to justify, the more awkward and more sensational the propaganda has to be. So immediately the, the Hamas attacks happened, even before we knew what had really happened. Israel was already saying that Hamas was beheading babies, or that the Hamas was, was raping women. And they knew that that actually just stopped all thinking and that American politicians and American media would blindly just go along with that and would keep repeating those things. So that became the frame. In that sense, of course, anything, you know, if, if you're dealing with monsters who are beheading babies and are raping uh, and mutilating women, then anything you do is justified uh, against that. And I think that was why that, that was the reason why 9/11 was invoked. 9/11 was such a traumatic event that, mm -hmm. that they were trying to you know, elicit that same kind of response from Americans. And therefore the, the propaganda was, as I said, way over the top. Even you know they, and they kept using it even when the, you know, even when the beheaded babies had been totally debunked. Joe Biden kept talking about <laughs> beheaded babies. I mean it was you know it's quite incredible. And, and he kept doing it because he knew that no one would question him. No one actually in the media would question him, but he could keep on doing it. In terms of Biden, though, I'm wondering if he actually believed it or if that was just the text put in front of him on the teleprompter. I mean, there are more and more questions about what he really believes in terms of what he's saying. I mean, I mean, I know I have a lot of questions, but the he even said that he saw pictures. Right. Yeah, but there were none. I mean, that, right. that's why. And he knows you will never be questioned by it. Like that, a, a proper media system. A pro, and if, if we lived in a country that had journalism, and we don't, we don't live in a, in a country that has journalism. We live in a country that has a really effective propaganda system. A real journalist would have asked him questions about those. But he knew that he could say whatever he wanted to, and he could get away with it. And I think this is less about what Biden believes. This is not about individuals. We have to think about this as a very systematic operation. Uh, I mean, I always say, whenever you start hearing dead babies, <laughs> there's mm. going to be a massacre that's coming. If you go back to you know, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in you know, 1991, there was a PR campaign run by an American company, Hill Knowlton, around uh, uh, Iraqi troops ripping babies out of incubators and leaving them on the floor to die. And then, you know, George Bush Sr. <laughs> referenced that as to why America had to intervene in it. So whenever there are dead babies involved, you know that the propaganda is in full tilt and there's something really awful and something really evil and something really extreme is about to happen. And that's obviously been the case. It's so horrific, the whole imagery and the whole use of dead infants, but you can't help but think or see in these in this type of use of information that what these PR companies conjure up 
are the actual things that the United States has been involved in in history. You know, so example, for example, all the children, you know, murdered in Vietnam or the actual the actual murdered children in Gaza right now, right? And the propaganda around Gaddafi and how there were, uh, he had given his soldiers um, Viagra so they could rape women. And um, there was, uh, I don't know, either connection with that or another time, these rape rooms. And the thing is, the United States... uh, uses this type of propaganda, but it's the United States that's been involved in raping of women. And, you know, that, that's that been this tool of war by, you know, so-called, you know, Western armies. So it's it's always this projection of something that the United States or uh, its allies ha- are doing, as opposed to what the boogeymen or the, the monsters that they make the opposition to be. But 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 that's exactly that's exactly what propaganda does. Propaganda takes reality and turns it on its head. So you know, in the case of Israel, you know, Israel, in whatever way you look at it, is you know, is a colonial imperialist power, and you have to turn that on its head. You have to make Israel that is the instigator of all the violence. You have to make it the victim of the violence, and that is a time-worn strategy in uh, in propaganda. And this one is no different. I mean, if you, in in the film, you know, we talk about the previous attacks on Gaza and the response has always been by Israel. We are only attacking Gaza because Hamas sent the rockets over to Israel. And so that has been the constant refrain that Hamas is always the one that instigates the violence. And, you know, if you can control when the story begins, you can control what the narrative is. If the starting point of the narrative is Hamas rockets or the starting point is October the 7th, right. um, then you can justify all kinds of things. And so you have to stop history at that point. You have to stop thinking about, you have to stop thinking about, well, there was a world before October the 7th. Yeah, there was 75 years of ethnic cleansing occupation that Israel was involved in. That all has to disappear. And I think it's a very effective form. I think if you ask most Americans now, not all Americans, I think we are in a stage now where more Americans are now questioning this than ever before. But Mm -hmm. still, the vast number of Americans, I think if you ask them, would have no idea of the history of uh, of the Middle East. They would have no idea of the history of uh, Israel-Palestine. I often say, I mean, I I teach these classes, and I often say the most radical thing you can do when it comes to Israel-Palestine is actually just say the history. Very, very straightforward history. <laughs> Get the maps out and see who is occupying what at what time. And when you do that, it is absolutely clear. And when the reality is clear, then you have to muddy it. When the reality is clear, then you have to make it confused. When the reality is clear, you, then you have to just make sure to, you have to tell people it's too complicated. You can't possibly understand it. It's too complicated. Just <laughs> And people have, have been in, in, intimidated by that. Uh, and when, when people find out the reality, and I think more and more people are doing that now because there's no way that Israel can hide from the pictures, um, more and more the reality will, will, will come to the fore. And as that happens, the propaganda will get even worse. I thought it was one of the best lines in the documentary is it's, it's something like, you want to make it about terror, not territory. Yeah. And well, that, 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 was, that was quoting Frank Luntz. Exactly. Right? 
I mean, that's the research they've done. They don't use language without it being researched. So anything that you hear is not some someone making it up on the fly. This is language that has been developed. It's language that's been tested, has been focus tested, especially to work on Americans. As the line you just mentioned, keep the focus on terror, not territory. Because the moment you make it about territory, then you're talking about history. And at that point, American support starts to wither away. Yeah, and exactly. I always say, no matter how repetitive it might seem to me and some of our audience, as often as I can, I try to put on information about the Nakba <laughs> because there are so many people, like you said, who still, they have this line ringing around in their head, you know, a land for a people, for a people without a land. Yeah. And, you know, even even in 2024, there are a lot of people who just buy into that mantra that's been put into our heads. And so as often as I can, I, I repeat about the Nakba. But I wanted to uh, ask you about your reaction to the report that came out in terms of CNN and how there, I mean, there's so much as that has come out in the way that social media has impacted uh, what people know now. So I get most of my information about what's happening in Gaza, like from Instagram <laughs> and other types of social media. And it's made such a big impact in terms of especially how younger people uh, understand this conflict and and how they react to it and how people go out and protest in the streets and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people here in, in this country. But I'm wondering what your reaction was to the report that CNN had so much of their news basically approved by, if not directly by the IDF, by certainly by the government of Israel through their Jerusalem Bureau. Yeah, I mean, there's, again, there's nothing new about that. That's always been the case, is that whatever news we get has been filtered through Israeli censors and through Israeli eyes. Uh, and oftentimes those, you know, the representatives are sitting in American newsrooms. They're the ones who are, who are acting as the filters. I mean, what I think is interesting right now about the CNN, and I think it's a, it's, it's an, it, this is now uh, it's an example of a propaganda system that's starting to break down. Because mm -hmm. a propaganda system that works properly doesn't need orders from the top. The propaganda system that works properly or a media system that works properly means that reporters already know this stuff. Staff don't need to be reminded of it. But when reality mm -hmm. is seeping in and when some people at CNN still think they're journalists, you know, I don't know how they think that, but they still think they're journalists and they <laughs> see that there's another reality they have to be reminded, no, you are not journalists, you are corporate spokespeople, and here is what your CEO is telling you to do and telling you how to report the news. That, for me, is an indication of a system breaking down because there are other sources of information now. They no longer have a total monopoly on it. As you said, social media has become a filter that becomes increasingly more difficult for them to control. They're still trying to control it, but it becomes more difficult to control. So I think at the moment what you have is you have a, a global population outside the U.S. that essentially knows what's going on, that knows the reality of it. And then within the U.S. you have essentially this, you know, a, a propagandized population 
that is deluded into thinking they know what's going on when, in fact, they've only been told a very, very narrow sliver of the story. And again, what our film was about, that's what our film was really about, laying out those structures. And what we hoped when we did the film was, you know, we, we knew things would always move on. You know, there's always new things that happen in history. And we didn't want the film just to be about a moment in history. If the film is useful, and I think it is, it's because it identifies those structures that are ongoing and mm-hmm. identifies those structures that say, here is how the narrative gets spun. This is what structures the narrative that we hear. You know, so there's just two more things I want to ask you, because one of the things the film does at the end is it talks about the lobby and it talks about the impact on U.S. elected officials. And so even given the tremendous uprising among people hundreds of thousands of people in the streets here in the United States who are obviously outside this, the matrix that's been created, you know, by the Hasbara, the propaganda of Israel, the Congress, and we already talked about Biden. We didn't really talk about Blinken and, and the defense secretary, uh, Austin perpetrating this, uh, propaganda, but the Congress, you know, they're, they've been slow to come around just dozens have signed on to a ceasefire, uh, resolution. And so a lot of people are being, um, I don't know, educated in a different way about the power of this lobby, the impact of money in politics, and the real foreign influence in our elections and on our politics. So, Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's the ironic thing. There's all this talk about Russia and yeah. you know, external power, but the, the, the country that's had the most amount of influence over the last few decades, not just the last few years, but the last few decades, is Israel and through the lobby. And I think it's also very important in the, in the film we make, we, I, you know, we're very clear on this, and I don't want people to be misunderstood. We're not talking about the Jewish lobby. This is not a Jewish lobby. This is an Israel lobby because right. the lobby is represented by many people. You don't have to be Jewish to be part of this. You can be <laughs> fundamentalist Christians who are the large right. part of this lobby because they have their own agenda when it comes to Israel controlling everything from the river to the sea. They think that's what has to happen before, you know, when, before Armageddon takes place. So the most anti-Semitic people in the country, you know, fundamentalist Christians, are the ones who are most supportive uh, of Israel. And I think, that, you know, it's one of these questions that comes up, which is, you know, what is it that, why is the U.S. so one-sided on this? And, I, you know, for a long time, I mean, I, I used to believe this. I used to think that this is about geopolitics, that Israel was the proxy army for the U.S. In, uh, in the Middle East. And I don't think that's true anymore. The U.S. doesn't need Israel geopolitically anymore. It's got lots of other proxies. It, it can you know, send warships to the Mediterranean and they can be ready to bomb Iran at any time. I think large right now, a large part of this policy, I think, is being driven internally, is being driven by the lobby. And with its pressure on Congress, with its pressure on the media, and with his pressure on the White House. He doesn't really care beyond that. He needs to control those people, and he just has to control public opinion enough that public opinion will not put pressure on their elected officials. That if elected officials can take whatever position they want without having to worry that they're going to lose the next election. And I think at the moment, uh, the, the lobby is one of the major forces driving uh, American policy towards Israel. 
Well, I guess that leads to my final question, really. And that's just really how dangerous this is, because when uh, you talk about a propagandized population, of course, that, that, that fits the definition of what's happening here in the U.S. But I've been really struck by how that fits the definition of the Israeli population and how they seem almost, I don't know, I don't want to be a delve into hyperbole, but it's just, they seem crazy. I mean, when I see people um, celebrating uh, the torture of prisoners, apparently recently uh, people from the civilian population were brought in to witness civilian uh, Palestinian civilians being tortured to see an elderly man uh, stripped naked and, and humiliated in front of people to be joyous about people being starved to, to block buses and convoys, bringing food, needed aid to people. So, and, but this has been going on for decades. I mean, I remember the scenes from not only killing Gaza, but Abby Martin's documentary where uh, people were saying, you know, kill all the Arabs and people were sitting on a hill overlooking the bombing of Gaza for entertainment it reminded me of people going to a picnic to see a lynching like in this country. But, you know, I'm just wondering about just because at this point in this conflict, and I don't want to use that word in in this point of this attack on Gaza, I just don't know how far Israel is suicidal. I think that that word is actually used in the documentary that the propaganda can go so far that you have people willing to be suicidal in their hatred of Palestinians and their real belief that they are right in committing genocide. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what is going on in Israel is a is a different thing. I mean, Israel, you know, is a is a different country than I think most people have in their minds. Most people, I mean, again, Israel, you know, presents this fantasy that Israel is the only democracy, that it's you know a Western democracy. When in fact Israel, as you mentioned, have been has been more and has been drifting more and more right wing. Netanyahu is someone who's been in power for a long time. That's not an accident, and he's representative of a certain kind of uh, perspective, which is that Israel has to control, in his words, uh, not the words of Palestinians. In his words, Israel has to control uh, all security from the river to the sea. And, you know, you've got a large part of the population, I think, uh, behind that. The idea that there is some, you know, progressive, you know, a a significant progressive part of of Israel, I think that's just a fantasy. When you speak to progressives in Israel, I mean, they are a very, very small minority. And they are increasingly more and more scared about their own safety in this, what seems to be an increasingly irrational and, you know, crazy population driven by, hatred of Arabs uh, and this notion that somehow they are the chosen people and therefore they can do whatever they want. You know, it's, it's the same, that's the same ideology that was behind bin Laden, <laughs> you know, and, and Islamic fundamentalism. We've now got, you know, really extreme Zionist fundamentalism. And are we going to survive this? I mean, that, that's, that really is an open question as to how long these kinds of hatreds can uh, can keep festering and how they can drive policy, how many thousands and thousands of people they can kill. The only solution we have to that is to try and hang on to the truth, is to try and have some belief that there actually is a value in truth and in always trying to 
persuade people that the reality actually is different, uh, that this is the best way to understand reality, uh, and to educate people. Uh, other than that, I, I don't really know any other way of moving forward in this. Whether that's going to be enough, I really don't know. <laughs> I think that's an open question uh, in this context. Well, I guess that's the open question for all of us as we try to cover this and present reality to people. And uh, it's also probably the best way to end our conversation. Uh, I want to thank Satjali, Professor Emeritus of Communication at the University of Massachusetts, founder and executive director of the Media Education Foundation, and executive producer of this documentary we're discussing today, Occupation of the American Mind. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sut. Okay, thanks very much. And I promised Sut that I would mention so many of the free resources that the Media Education Foundation has on their website, including this video and others. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. And that's On the Ground Show on Facebook or X Twitter and Patreon. The podcast is On the Ground with Esther Ivarum on all your podcast platforms. And please subscribe. If you want to reach us, you can write us at contact at onthegroundshow.org. And I'll link to every show on my Instagram page, which is Esther underscore Ivarum. That's I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M like Mary. So the Free Palestine Movement is continuing with actions. You can follow what's happening at shutitdownforpalestine.org and also at answercoalition.org. Our theme music for the show is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show, and we are in need of your support. If you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check. All that information is there. But please, please support us. I want to thank our supporters on Patreon so much. And for those who are already supporting, if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up, we need the support. Patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground show.org. Thank you.